This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Jim Hightower, The David Packman Show, The Progressive Magazine, On the Media, The Majority Report, and Moyers and Company. And a quick note that I hate that I'm even wasting time on today's topic, but it's important to understand what an unbelievably terrible bullshit distraction it is. It is finally, officially over. Well, kind of, not com- completely officially, because they haven't completely signed off on the legislation. But anyway, it's over. Wall Street, 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 and elbows everywhere. Yes, uh, the GOP has been defeated. Uh, we will get uh, funding of the government back, and uh, the government will be reopened, of course, until January. And the debt ceiling will be lifted until February. And then we'll go through all this drama again. Unless, of course, at some point, President Obama finally gives in. It's not really giving in. He wants to do it anyway and does a grand bargain, cuts Social Security and Medicare. That's what this is about. It's not about Obamacare. They knew they never had a chance. In fact, the head of the Heritage Action Fund, the guys who pushed them hardest on this, came out today and said, oh, yeah, Obamacare. I mean, obviously, we can't touch that until 2017. Then why in the world did you do all this? Because it was never about that. It was so they can cut your Social Security and Medicare. That's a long con and that's coming next. But for the moment being, yes, politically, they are vanquished. Now, the last throws of the Republicans went like this. The House said, hey, hey, hey Senate, we got this, we got this, all right? We're going to put together a proposal here. John Bader said, step aside, all right? And they had this great plan, and Representative John Fleming was stupid enough to share it with us, Republican of Louisiana. He said, we want to make a deal that they can't refuse, and we're running out of time. Timing is very important here. This is him talking yesterday. They're going to be more motivated to take this up, otherwise they miss the Thursday deadline, saying like, ha, 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 we've got this great plan, we run out of the clock. And at the end, the House passes this really conservative bill, and then goes to the Senate and goes, ah, yep, now you got to let the debt ceiling, so you're going to have to say yes. And here's what happened. They couldn't even get it passed in the House, even among the Republicans. They went to go argue among themselves, and this is an awesome moment, last night, and the moderate Republicans, such as they are, say, Hey, come on, let's go. We've got to do a clean, continuing resolution. We've got to open this thing back up. Are you guys insane? The markets are going to melt. Okay, you can't do this. So then you have the conservative Republicans, about 20 of them that are holdouts, the guys who, a lot of whom went to dinner with Ted Cruz the other night, saying, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, this legislation that is more conservative than the one in the Senate, not good enough, not good enough. We want more. We want to defund Obamacare. And Bain was like, oh, come on, dude. I don't know if I could tell you this clear enough. We lost. We lost. There's no defunding Obamacare. There's no getting what you want. We lost. But no, they couldn't come to an agreement. So they had to surrender and say, all right, the Senate, you do it. And the Senate version, obviously not as conservative. The Senate run by Democrats. And the Senate Republicans, uh, Mitch McConnell, John McCain, etc., have already said, we lost. We're going to give the Democrats pretty much what they want. And there's a couple of small details about you know, just minutia to do a tiny bit of face saving. But the bottom line is, it's clean. They uh, wind up opening the government back up. They lift the debt ceiling. And then they have a commission that will consider the grand bargain later and kick it down the road. But overall, the Democrats win. And the House couldn't even get together to pass anything at the end. And then you started seeing panic tweets like this one. Email from a Republican lawmaker. Time to roll over. <laughs> I love that one. Jonathan Strong hears, quote, it's all over. We'll take the Senate deal. That's a GOP aid. When I started seeing those roll in, 
I was like, all right, well, now we're having fun. Okay. Uh, and then Representative Jamie Herrera uh, Boitler, who is one of the so-called moderates, came out and said, look, 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 I try to give the Republican leadership as much time as I could so they could have a leverage to make a better deal. It turns out they're never going to make a better deal. The leverage was wasted. This whole thing was a fool's errand. So she says, quote, it's time for my colleagues to face reality. They say it's over. Then you go to the editorial boards, and they have ravaged the Republicans here. But the most interesting one is the Wall Street Journal, because the Wall Street Journal is conservative. Their editorial board is massively conservative. And listen to what they say about how the uh, Republicans play this. Quote, the conservatives thus undermined whatever small leverage the House GOP had left when they were obstinate in the situation I just explained, right? Without a united majority of 218 votes, Republicans might as well hand the Speaker's gavel to Senate Democratic leader Harry Reid. What in the world were you doing? What were you thinking? You've lost. And then he, they continue. This is the quality of thinking, or lack thereof, that has afflicted many GOP conservatives from the beginning of this budget showdown. Showdown, I should say. They picked a goal they couldn't achieve in trying to defund Obamacare from one House of Congress, and then they picked a means they couldn't sustain politically by pursuing a long government shutdown and threatening to blow through the debt limit. And then finally they conclude by saying, Republicans can best help their cause now by getting this over with and moving on to fight more intelligently another day. Damn. So then the rest of the editorial boards rolled up their sleeves and went to work, particularly on John Boehner, calling this, according to Politico, a disaster. And then... The Washington Post called it a humiliating failure. I'm rather enjoying this. Then we go to NBC's Peter Alexander, and he says, After a shutdown that lasted 16 days, a shutdown led by House Republicans, by the end of today, those Republicans may leave with little to nothing to show for it. That's fairly obvious. And then ABC's John Carl. House Republicans are the clear losers. They push to the brink and have nothing to show for it. I don't believe that Jonathan Carl, in his reporting, actually said losers, but he should have said it that way because Boehner has been reamed in every direction. He's actually taking it double donger style. I'll tell you why. Because you got the conservatives saying, Oh, you caved at the end. I can't believe this. You know, you're going to use the Democrats to get enough votes because the Republicans aren't going to vote for this, right? The conservatives are never, ever, ever, ever going to vote for it. So Boehner's going to put it up at the end. Some few Republicans will vote for it, along with the Democrats, for, to open the government back up. And they'll say, Oh, Boehner caved! But dude, how long did you want him to go? I mean, he slit one wrist and one artery. Did you want both arteries and both wrists? <laughs> but they're not good enough, Boehner's not conservative enough! Bring out the double donger! Okay, on the other end, you have the mainstream saying, Ah, Boehner, how stupid were you that you started this whole mess without knowing how to end it? Now, they're right about that, right? But Boehner was forced in that position because if he didn't do that, then he would have lost the speakership. And I don't know if you know this, but politicians kind of care about power. So, he damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. And in this case, he was damned in both ways. So it leads to a gigantic failure on the part of Boehner and the Republican Party, but driven there by the Tea Party Republicans, to be fair. Now, uh, people who told you all about it all along was somebody like Peter King. Pete King said, it was hard for them to get the votes anyway, 
And then when Heritage came out, that killed it. You see, that's a really interesting part of this dynamic. Because as they're discussing it last night within the uh, House Republican Caucus, Heritage Action Group, the same guys who now say, oh, Obamacare, <laughs> we were never going to defund that, are you crazy? We'd have to wait until 2017 when we actually won a presidential election. Well, why didn't you say that from day one, you schmucks? Anyway, so they put out a letter saying, no, the last proposal from the House, not good enough. And so Peter Welsh understandably asks, and he's a Democrat from Vermont, who's calling the shots here? Ted Cruz, Heritage Action? Who knows, but it sure isn't John Boehner. They had a plan, and they withdrew the plan right after Heritage Action denounced the plan. Well, he's absolutely right about that. And, of course, John Boehner isn't calling the shots. Heritage Action is. Now, why? Why are they calling the shots? Because they represent the guys with all the money. John Boehner isn't the deciding factor here. John Boehner is a paid actor. And he gets his notes from the director. And the director, in this case, well, if you trace it all the way back, it's not as simple as just saying it's the Koch brothers. But they're a large, large part of this. They put $200 million into the effort to defund Obamacare, push the government to the brink, shut it down, etc. But overall, them combined with multinational corporations, they're the actual actors in this play. And, you know, actor meaning person who takes action, right? As opposed to an actor like John Boehner who's like, oh, what's my lines? What am I supposed to say? Yeah, goddamn the debt ceiling. I'm not going to raise it. Oh, I'm supposed to raise it now? Okay, yes, I raise it. Okay, he has no decisive role to play here. That's why heritage action is so important. And then we go back to Peter King. He says, quote, this party is going nuts. And not in the right kind of way. It's not like he threw a banger and be like, dude, this thing is nuts. It's awesome. I don't think he means it that way. So many people I run into who are normal people, and I hate to use that term. Republicans generally hate to use that term. Uh, they just can't understand what's going on. And he continues, on this one, they can't even see both sides. They just think Republicans are crazy. That's it. They see no justification for any of this. And then finally he adds... Even if this bill passed tonight, whether he's referring to the House bill that I was telling you about earlier, what would it have done after shutting down the government for two and a half weeks, laying off 800,000 people, all the damage we caused, all we wound up in, in the end doing was taking away health insurance from congressional employees. That was part of the package. That's it. That's what you go to war for? That's what we shut down the United States government for? Well, that's what you did. And it was monumentally stupid. And it has hurt the Republican brand tremendously. Now, there's a very good argument to make that they still win on policy grounds because they shifted the debate so far to the right. But when it comes to politics, they have really damaged themselves. I think that this is a bit of a decisive moment. Not decisive in that it ends history here or anything like that, but decisive in the sense that this sets the tone for how people think of Republicans. And I think that it could have wide-ranging ramifications, not just for the next election in 2014, but beyond. I think going forward, the American people, when they think of the Republican Party, they think, oh, those are the extremists. Those are the extreme guys who's always, they're always huffing and puffing, and they want their way, and they shut the government down. They're like crybabies. They're extreme. And in order to get rid of that brand that has now been established it's gonna take a lot of doing probably a lot of that Koch brothers money but right now the Koch brothers money led them off a cliff 
and destroyed the brand to begin with. So, GOP, well played. Okay, like, hey, anybody got an elbow? Yeah? Oh, you do? Can you drop it off? Oh, there it is. One, two, three, four. Have you ever been close to tragedy? I've been close to folks who have. Have you ever felt the pain so powerful, so heavy you collapse? Now, Dr. Hightower offers this advice for improving your mental health. Don't fume about the GOP's lunatic effort to kill health care reform. Just laugh at their farcical show. Take Senator Ted Cruz's 21-hour blabathon, which he said would stop Obamacare in its tracks. Not only did he fail spectacularly, but senators voted 100 to 0 against his crazy ploy. Yes, that means even he voted against it. What a hoot he is. A shameful hypocrite, too. While going to extremes to keep millions of Americans from getting vitally needed health coverage, Cruz repeatedly refused to answer whether taxpayers covered his health care. Finally, he piously responded that he was eligible for taxpayer coverage, but had nobly declined. Such slapstick! It turns out that Ted was fibbing, for he's covered by his wife's policy. As a millionaire top executive at Goldman Sachs, she and her family are given gold-plated Cadillac coverage by the Wall Street giant. Goldman pays some $40,000 a year for her and Ted's policy, a benefit cost that the firm passes on to us taxpayers by deducting it from its corporate tax bill. Hilarious, huh? Then there's the comic twist that's included in Congress's current government shutdown. While more than a million regular government workers are going without a paycheck, the Congress critters who forced the furlough continue to collect their $174,000 in annual pay. Some lawmakers are donating their checks to charity, but four out of five are happily pocketing theirs. Dang straight, barked Representative Lee Terry. I've got a nice house and a kid in college, the Nebraska Republican said. Giving our paycheck away when you still worked and earned it? That's just not going to fly, Terry told his constituents. This is Jim Hightower saying, and that's your Congress at work. Laugh till it hurts. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support.
Sarah Palin is not taking any breaks from her continued spouting of nonsense. She is now saying that in light of this entire government shutdown, Obamacare, debt ceiling debate, she says that President Obama is actually risking impeachment over the debt ceiling. And this is an example of you can't you simply can't have it both ways. And I'll explain forwardprogressives.com has an article about this. Sarah Palin had some, quote, words of wisdom where she wrote that President Obama is flirting with impeachment because of his actions concerning the debt ceiling. She said defaulting on our national debt is an impeachable offense. And any attempt by President Obama to unilaterally raise the debt limit without Congress is also an impeachable offense. So basically, Lewis, if President Obama doesn't let Republicans hold him hostage and give in to their demands about the debt ceiling and, uh, and Obamacare, then we default and that's impeachable. However, if President Obama realizes that he's being held hostage by Republicans and decides to raise the debt ceiling unilaterally, that's also an impeachable offense. And this, of course, completely ignores that the House of Representatives would also be equally responsible for either raising or not raising the debt ceiling. But apparently they can stay in Lewis. It's just President Obama who, in either case, would have committed an impeachable offense. What a convenient scenario that Sarah Palin has outlined for us. Very convenient, and I'm sure we can count on Sarah Palin to lead this impeachment crusade <laughs> with uh, with extreme vigor. And um, and well, of course, she won't succeed, but it'll be entertaining. Now, I want to remind the audience: when you hear, you have to be armed with facts when you start hearing the the debt the, the uh, uh, debt ceiling mumbo jumbo and talking points. A lot of Republicans who 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 simply are kind of under the umbrella of small government libertarian, reduce spending, shrink expenditures, etc., will just argue that at its face, increasing the debt ceiling is bad and it is unconstitutional and it is something presidents should be punished for. But we have to go back and look at history and say, well, okay, let's explore that. Have other presidents raised the debt ceiling? Could this be just political posturing? President Obama so far has raised the debt ceiling three times, for a total of 2.9 trillion in increases. If we go back to George W. Bush, George W. Bush raised the debt ceiling seven times for a total of 5.3 trillion dollars in debt increase. Let's go back to Bill Clinton, who had four debt ceiling increases, totaling just under two trillion dollars. George W. Bush one had four debt ceiling increases for about one point three trillion dollars. And let's go back to Ronald Reagan Lewis, who increased the debt ceiling 17 times, tripling the debt ceiling from the numbers where where where, where, where the debt ceiling was when he initially came into office. Many of these right wingers who are now uh saying that the debt ceiling just simply cannot be raised more and the fact that President Obama wants to raise it is a sign that he is a bad president or whatever else they want to say, it would apply five times over to Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, is kind of lauded as the hero of many of these same conservatives. But ignorance is bliss, David, and I'm sure even the ones who are aware of this, or if you were to bring it up to them, would have some uh, very convenient explanation for why it needed to happen uh, under Reagan, 
as opposed to Obama? No, under Reagan, it was because he was being held hostage by Democrats or something. And there was like a welfare mom who had a Cadillac or whatever story it was that Ronald Reagan told. All of that stuff combined with freedom, liberty and America made it so that Ronald Reagan had no choice but to raise the debt ceiling 17 times. But somehow President Obama raising it three times is an impeachable offense. Incredible logic. It would really be the stuff of like an introductory philosophy class, just analyzing logical fallacies. Once again, David Sirota has written a great article, okay? And at the end of all of this, and the, yes, the Republicans got crushed politically, yes, they've damaged their brand tremendously, and it seems that they now stand for extremism. Yes, I think that they stand an excellent chance of actually losing the House in 2014. I understand all of that. But when it comes to policy, David Sirota is right again. It turns out that they have moved the spectrum so far right that progressives are not even really considered in the equation. First of all, a really telling quote that David brought up is from the New York Times. They were had an article about this, and they quoted Joe Echeverria, who's the chief executive of Deloitte, that's an accounting and, and, and consulting firm. So this is one of the corporate guys. And he says, look, I, he says, I'm a diehard Republican. I'm a registered Republican. I, I've been a Republican the whole time. And I define myself as a Republican. But these Tea Party guys are extreme, and they have real power. And then he has this telling quote. He says, the extreme right has 90 seats in the House. Occupy Wall Street has no seats. So isn't that amazing? Because if you look at the polls, the country totally agrees with Occupy Wall Street, that the banks have been too deregulated, they've gotten away with historic fraud they agree with wall street that tax cuts have been are extreme now and that we need to actually increase tax on the rich they agree with wall street, occupy wall street on so many core issues zero seats in the house zero seats in the senate the tea party now has an approval rating of 21 percent 90 seats in the house why because the spectrum has shifted because all the money flows to the right and then he explains it perfectly in this quote he says in this new arena, the Democratic Party is the far left edge of the political spectrum, despite it being, by recent historical comparisons, an economically conservative party reminiscent of the GOP 10 or 20 years ago. Let me pause there for a second. Look, this is what I say all the time, because I was a Republican 10 to 20 years ago, and yes, this Democratic Party is not just reminiscent of that GOP party. I was a liberal Republican from the Northeast, socially liberal, and economically conservative, right? Back then in that spectrum. Now, I'm pretty much where I was, certainly on economic issues and fiscal issues. The Democratic Party went from way to the left of me to significantly to the right of me. I'm now considered this like fire-breathing progressive or something, right? So, yes, the Democratic Party is now center-right, especially when it comes to economic issues. And David continues. At the same time, 
The new mainstream right is the Tea Party extremism. Meanwhile, the supposedly sensible center is what you might call Chamber of Commerce conservatism, a.k.a. the reliably conservative agenda of corporate America. And there you have it. That's exactly the good cop, bad cop that was just played on us. Oh, the good cops are the corporations that support the Democratic Party and the Republican establishment. The bad cops are those crazy extreme Tea Party guys. Oh, I can't believe you pulled us further and further right. Oh, no, golly gee. Oh, look at that. Before the negotiations even really began in earnest, before the shutdown began, the Democrats had already given an extra $70 billion away. And, and now the plan that's being put into effect today is actually to the right of Paul Ryan's original extremely right plan. It cut more in spending than Paul Ryan's original plan did. Look at how far the spectrum has moved to the right. And the sequester which the Democrats were originally upset about and all the cuts in spending that the sequester had is now the new normal. So corporations love the redistribution of wealth to them. They, and that's what the Republican Party is about. Unfortunately, that's what a large part of the Democratic Party has become about. So we play this soap opera between the extreme Tea Party guys and what is now being disguised as the sensible center, even though it does not match what the American people say in the polls at all as to what their real intentions are. And in the end, we have right-wing policy, pro-corporate policy that cuts spending for the average American and that can't wait to cut spending on what they call our entitlements, the Social Security and Medicare we paid into. So that's the shell game that just got played on us. So if you're a progressive, don't rejoice too much in the Republican defeat. Yes, it matters in politics, and we hope it might that politics might matter in policy later. But for the moment being, they're still having their way with us in terms of policy. That's disturbing, but it's reality. You almost have to laugh at the hapless Tea Party politicians who even today can't recognize that they shot themselves in the foot with their childish tantrum over the debt ceiling. Ted Cruz and company say they did the right thing, and they blame the so-called moderates in their party for not jumping over the cliff with them. No matter that they couldn't win, no matter that they've bolstered Obama's popularity and damaged their own with their ridiculous stunt, this group is so ideological it's impervious not only to the facts, but also to experience. Meanwhile, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, hardly a pillar of progressivism, has come out against the Tea Party and the Koch brothers. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Chamber was lobbying for an end to the debt crisis, and it's now considering funding candidates to run against the Tea Partiers. This is the battle royal going on right now within the Republican Party. It's between the Tea Party fanatics, funded by the Koch brothers, and the rest of the Republican Party, which is also for big business, but doesn't want to destroy all of government just to get its way. I never thought I'd be on the side of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, but there you go. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Strange but true. Strange but true. Strange but true.
history Some just learn from passing time Some people earn your trust And spend it on themselves and leave you crying Some people say just what you want to hear Then do just what they want to do And some people will take everything they have And waste it all on people just like you Strange but true to borrow a phrase from a past crisis, the long national nightmare is over. That was CNN's Kate Baldwin Thursday with a powerful description of what happened this week. That's how many media voices portrayed the end of the shutdown, in spite of that portrayal being utterly untrue. As long as congressional Republicans can use routine debt limit approval to sue for Democratic concessions, there's every possibility we will be back in the nightmare in four months as the next deadline approaches. As for the media's characterization of the economic fallout, that went mostly like this. And congratulations, America. We have not defaulted on our national debt by the skin of our teeth. Reuters financial blogger Felix Salmon says that the close call narrative that played out Thursday is an altogether misleading, if comforting, depiction of what really happened. In a very real sense, the government is in default on its obligations. If we were to default on our treasury bonds, it's not like we're not going to pay you and you're just going to have to take losses on your bonds. But what it means is we are not going to pay our obligations as they come due. And that's exactly what we've already started doing with the government salaries. What people can't do anymore is just implicitly trust that the obligations of the U.S. government are what's known as risk-free assets. This is this absolutely key concept in the financial markets. And it's just impossible anymore, after what we've just seen, to believe that there is zero risk. Now that, once again, the final negotiations have been postponed on the debt ceiling, the operating cliche is we have kicked the can down the road. We are kicking the can, but better to kick the can than to stomp on the can. At the same time, we can't keep kicking the can down the road. Instead of kicking the can down the road, kick the can down the road. Kick the can down the road. The can kicking metaphor is one which we're very used to in the financial press. It invariably refers to countries which have very gnarly problems which can't be easily solved. And so what they do is implement legislation which causes those problems to just rise up again down the road. That is not the situation that we're facing right now. The entire problem could go away as a stroke if we just abolish the debt ceiling. That is not an insurmountable problem. There's a piece of legislation, the McConnell Amendment, which would surmount it. And so we're taking a tractable problem and forcing it to come back time and again for no reason. As these things come up, how should the press be focusing its coverage? And how should we be doing it in particular this week? Some of the better coverage that I saw was coming from abroad. You would get people going to Mexico, Brazil, India, China, South Africa, and looking at the U.S. through the eyes of foreigners who are just absolutely shocked and appalled and can't believe what they're seeing. And to just pull back a bit, get that kind of perspective, and to try and explain that this is not some kind of a game where so long as we manage to come up with a solution before some artificial deadline, that everything's going to be okay. Well, I know somebody who agrees with you there. And then uh, this morning, we get the Wall Street Journal out, and it says, well, we don't care how long this lasts. 
uh, because we're winning. This isn't some damn game. That was Speaker of the House John Boehner about 10 days into the crisis. One of the ironies of this whole episode, it seems to me, is that the global financial stability that hangs in the balance and the devastation to the U.S. economy was triggered by the uh, Tea Party minority in the House of Representatives and one loud U.S. senator, all based on Obamacare, which they claim is a dangerous, dangerous law because it's going to wreak havoc on our economy and they say is wreaking havoc on us now, that it's going to increase deficits, that's going to increase the national debt. Just on the face of it, are those conditions even present or expected over the next, let's say, 10 years, according to neutral economists? Well, there's a whole arm of the government called the Congressional Budget Office, which is tasked with exactly this question. And if you ask the CBO about Obamacare, they'll say, no, it really doesn't do what the Tea Party says it's going to do. I'm going to go with the CBO on this one. So I guess my ultimate question is, should it not be a staple of coverage to remind readers and listeners and viewers more or less every step along the way that this whole ongoing catastrophe is premised on political rhetoric that is fundamentally untrue? Yeah, I wish. I, w I would love that. It wouldn't change much, to be honest, because it's very difficult to argue someone out of an ideology using Congressional Budget Office speculation about what may or may not happen to debt-to-GDP ratios in the future. If the press understands institutionally that reporting the context properly and regularly is not going to have an effect on a major player in the debate, namely the Tea Party Republicans, does that absolve us of the responsibility to do our job? Absolutely not. No, we should be out there explaining the facts as clearly as possible, as regularly as possible, and not just in the last crazy few days before the debt ceiling is reached. It's incumbent upon the press to explain, no, this really is the politics of suicide, and it's insane for anyone to vote for it. Let's go. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Politico has a good uh, rundown of the shutdown, and it edifies some of the stuff that I have been hearing uh, and have been talking about over the past couple of days, that uh, really the linchpin in preventing the Republicans from getting the grand bargain, from uh, using this debt ceiling and government shutdown as a uh, an effective hostage situation, uh, the guy who stood between that and the administration's long-settled 
And you can tweet at me. The Obama bots can fire up their machines and tweet at me right now. Their long-settled um, desire with the administration to make a deal to reform entitlements, i.e. cut Social Security. Uh, the guy who stood in between uh, the Republicans and the, the Democrats on that was Harry Reid. Uh, a couple of choice um, quotes from this uh, political piece. Apparently Obama um, was outside uh, one of the meetings with uh, John Bonaire as he had to go uh, get on a cigarette break and uh, presumably uh, take a shot. John, what happened, Obama asked, according to people briefed on the October 2 conversation. I got overrun. That's what happened, said Bonaire. Uh, I, I wonder what President Obama said at that point. Like, man, you're useless. Why are you here? And then Bonaire said, "It's your fault. It's your fault for being black and being president. What the hell? You couldn't have changed your middle name." <laughs> Republicans cycled through every option possible during the three-week standoff to save face. Their Obamacare demands devolved from a repeal and to fund to a delay of the individual mandate. They revived the idea of a grand bargain on taxes and government spending, but Reed openly laughed when Bonaire raised it during a White House meeting. They offered a more narrow proposal to replace the sequester cuts for two years. Then they went back to Obamacare, and nothing worked. And uh, here is the piece that confirms what we know about the last fiscal cliff negotiations. When things were at their worst, some Republican senators urged Vice President Joe Biden to get more involved. But he told each of them it wasn't his call. Biden participated in meetings at the White House. But Reid, still angry about the Vice President's concessions during the fiscal cliff talks last December, had shut him out of direct negotiations with lawmakers this time around. We know that Biden stepped in and let the Republicans off the hook when the Democrats had all the leverage. Again, I remind you, the Bush tax cuts were going to sunset at January 1, 2012. 2013, excuse me. If the entire House and Senate went on an extended carnival cruise and didn't return until January 2nd, they would have in their pocket, the Democrats, taxes raised on everyone across the board back to Clinton administration levels. And then they would have been in the driver's seat and said to the Republicans, here's your opportunity to vote against the middle class tax cut because we're not giving it to millionaires and billionaires. Why didn't they do it? Because the White House didn't want that type of leverage. They didn't want to go into this fist fight with a 300-pound gorilla or with just a gun or even a knife. Because that would be rude.
John McCain and Mitch McConnell, two Republican senators, are saying that there's there's no more shutdowns. Don't worry, there won't be any more. Uh, Senate, Re Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell says a government shutdown is off the table this winter, of course, when there would be, again, the same type of decisions to make about funding the government and the debt ceiling, so on and so forth. The statement came courtesy of National Review, whom the Kentucky Republican spoke with. Two tweets were sent the same day that the government reopened. McConnell to NR, looking ahead to January and February shutdown. A government shutdown is off the table. And Mitch McConnell on the prospect of another shutdown, quote, we're not going to do it, says other Republican leaders agree. John McCain, Republican from Arizona, along the same lines, he says he can, quote, guarantee that the government won't shut down again. He said that on CNN. He was interviewed on New Day, and he said people have been too traumatized by the shutdown and the, quote, damage done would prevent similar incidents from happening in the future. He says we may still have gridlock. We might have continuing resolutions. We're not going to shut down the government again. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Uh, Lewis, I'm not convinced that either of the, these two guys, even if these are absolutely their intentions, have enough power to make this guarantee. No, I guess I would agree with them that it doesn't seem uh, it doesn't seem likely, but uh, I think it could certainly happen, and it would be uh, not up to Congress, not up to the president. I mean, I think things could go seriously wrong, and that could force a government shutdown. But um, I I'm sure that they have good intentions here, and I'm sure they don't think it's likely, but you're right. I mean, anything can happen. It's amazing because John McCain has in some way become kind of like the voice of reason who realizes that Republicans lost on this, it wasn't a good idea, nothing was achieved, and he's been kind of ostracized by some elements of the Republican Party. Remember, we talked about Louis Gohmert, congressman from Texas, essentially calling John McCain a terrorist, uh, implying that he is a terrorist when he told the truth about the shutdown. So I believe that John McCain wants this to be the case, I just question whether he really has the power to enforce it or uh, whether he will just become kind of this bystander relegated to the uh, uh, just just kind of marginalized within his own party. But at least it seems that McCain and McConnell learned that this was not a good idea. Lewis, what would you say is the number one reason people should tune into the David Pakman show if they like Jay Tomlinson's Best of the Left podcast? I mean, I see it completely differently from, from someone who's just watching it. Yeah, well, but if I was asking someone else's opinion for the promo... I don't even watch our show, so how can I answer that question? I do not watch our show. So Lewis is, isn't even a fan of the show. <laughs> Maybe the answer is Lewis doesn't actually like Can you this be show. a fan of the show? I mean, are you? Can, is, isn't that kind of stupid to be a fan of your own show? I'm a huge fan of this show. <laughs> of course. That's like being a fan of yourself. You're like a narcissist. What, do you put pictures up of yourself at home, too? Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. My guest, Martin Wolf, says the U.S. debt ceiling is the legislative equivalent of a nuclear bomb that America has aimed at itself. And because Congress refused to permanently defuse it this week, the threat remains and could still detonate early next year. Take this flashing red alert seriously because it comes from a man who's been called the premier financial and economics writer in the world. Martin Wolf is the chief economics commentator 
for the influential financial times, and he's read by just about anyone who is someone in the stratosphere of high finance. But he plays no favorites and confronts the private sector with his failures of principle and mission just as quickly as he does government. His opinions are known to make the mighty listen and sometimes tremble. Martin Wolf, welcome. Thank you very much. Well, the bomb didn't go off. What now? Well, first of all, I'm not surprised it didn't go off because in the end, uh, the U.S. has always drawn back from the brink. Uh, and I'm terribly pleased. It's because it was so dangerous. What now? That's the really big question, isn't it? Uh, they've set themselves the task of preparing a budget uh, by mid-December. The continuing resolution will run out in January and the debt ceiling issue will rise again in February. I don't see how they're going to agree a budget. We know why it's been so difficult so far. I hope they will. Uh, I, and if they don't, I imagine there must be a possibility that we'll be in the same place again early next year. So how are the markets likely to handle that uncertainty between now and then and as we get close once again to the brink? The interesting thing is that the markets have taken all this in, in their stride largely. There's been a very small tremors in parts of it. But I think the markets still assume uh, that nothing bad is going to happen, that in the end it will be so insane for the U.S. actually to default, even for a few hours, that it's not going to happen. It's not a real threat. It's just political theater. And I, I, I have to say that's generally been my view, though this time I was more worried than before. Why? I was more worried because of the tone that one was getting from uh, the Republicans, and particularly in the House. There were a remarkable number of people, obviously, as it turns out, not a majority, but a remarkable number of people saying, well, a default will be okay. It wouldn't be a huge problem. Uh, we could manage it. It might even be a good thing. It would force the government to live within its means. Now, if a lot of people really think like that, as opposed to saying it in order to be a more effective bargainers, because it's obviously an effective bargaining technique, then they might actually live up to it. And maybe this time at last, uh, they uh, will actually let the, the bomb go off. It's like crying wolf. In the end, well, there was a wolf. <laughs> well, what's new, it seems to me, that perhaps the markets, especially markets abroad, don't understand is that this minority within a minority uh, is fiercely devoted to its ideology and to the struggle for power and really does believe that uh, a debt ceiling can be used to balance the budget, which is, uh, which is holy grail. Yes, well, that is exactly what we learned. Now, the fact is that an instantaneous balancing of the budget, even if we leave aside the terrible possibility of defaulting on debt, would do enormous economic damage, impose an instantaneous and, I think, really very large recession on the U.S. and on the world, doesn't seem to bother them. Uh, or at least that's what they were saying. And that some of them were even saying, well, if we demolish the creditworthiness of the United States, the full faith and credit of the United States, no one will lend to it anymore. It will never be able to borrow again. And then we won't have the problem with overmighty government. Looking at this from outside, what I see is the old American revolutionary tradition, if you like, against government, against overmighty government. Now it's your own, not King George. Uh, and it seems to recur. And it's fairly scary when it's there. Let's listen to a couple of members of Congress who were really saying that default and whatever would follow, it's no big deal. Listen 
I would dispel the rumor that is going around that you hear on every newscast that if we don't raise the debt ceiling, we will default on our debt. We yep. won't. We'll continue to pay our, our interest. We'll continue to uh, redeem bonds, and we'll issue new bonds to replace those. So that it's not entirely accurate. We're never, ever, 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 it's implausible that we won't make our interest payments. You have a $3.1 trillion we're going to take in, in tax revenues. We're going to spend about $3.7 trillion. So using language like, well, we're going to default, has the left decided that they're hungry to scare the markets, hungry to scare the world debt markets? And is this how you leverage politics? The first was Senator Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. The second was Representative David Schweikert of Arizona. What would you say to those two men if they were sitting at this table? What they're saying here is, well, the administration could always decide, and that's a question that the administration would answer, well, it's not so easy, but they would say the administration can always decide to use its money to pay its interest, to pay, to pay the interest, and redeem, redemption is not a problem. I agree with that, that they can pay the interest, and then they will default on something else, and Social Security, Social Security or Medicare. Now, the, the administration would say, and I agree with them, that is a default. Let's be quite clear. The, the, the United States has a legal obligation to pay those uh, Social Security checks and Medicare checks. These are legal obligations and, and, and not meeting those obligations is itself, in my view, a default, but it's a different sort of default from a financial default. Then there's the political aspect. Just think of it. Here will be an administration which is paying interest to China and all the other creditors and is not paying its own veterans and its own uh, pensioners and its own, uh, and its own elderly beneficiaries of Medicare. This would seem to me to be politically virtually impossible situation and yet they're recommending it. They are recommending that the United States pay its creditors and default on these legally binding obligations. And uh, so in this situation, yes, it might be possible to continue to service debt, but it would still be a default, and the default would have a, a moral implications for domestic American politics, which is very clear. You will be defaulting to domestic citizens, but also it would create an enormous recession because instantaneously, even if they cover their interest obligations, uh, the, the budget deficit will be closed. It's about a little over 4% of GDP, which is a very big sum. Instantaneously, that will be taken out of the economy. And uh, the economy would, just as it's beginning to recover reasonably well, collapse again. So in many different levels, it seems to me what they're saying is extraordinarily irresponsible and amazing. Even if you accept it, which the administration would deny, that they can and must meet their interest payments. Yes, President Obama has said he cannot give in to the people threatening default because this would increase their incentive to use it again. Do you agree with that? I agree. I, I, I recognize that the president was in a very difficult position and it was obviously scary. Uh, but threatening actually to default on your obligations in this way uh, seems to me to, to go well, way, well beyond normal political life. And any president, it seems to me, has to defend uh, the political process against that. And I think he's right to say, well, it might be the Democrats in future. I don't know right. that this is not a, a weapon 
that should be used. And my own view is that the debt ceiling should be eliminated. It's a very strange law. It's not constitutional. It's not a constitutional requirement. And it obliges, if it's imposed and if it's actually not lifted, it obliges the president to break the law. Now, to have a law that obliges the president to break the law, I not to meet the spending commitments that, as an executive, he's obliged legally uh, to meet, um, to have such a, a law seems to me just ruinous, and I think you should get rid of it. But that's not going to happen. Alas, we, no. We so we that. know that a few weeks from now, we'll be back with this circus again. So what should the president do when the circus comes down the street again? Well, I think there are, I think in essence, they've taken the right position, which is we will not negotiate under the threat of blowing up the, the solvency, the creditworthiness of the U.S. government. That's not a reasonable threat. We'll not respond to that. But we will negotiate a long-term budget deal. I think the, uh, the outlines of such a deal have been completely clear uh, for uh, at least since 2011. We all know that it will involve some uh, reductions in long-term entitled spending and some increases in revenue, not necessarily in taxation, but reductions in ta so-called tax expenditures, the, the deductions in the tax system, which will raise revenue. And as a result of those two things, I think the completely manageable U.S. debt long-term debt position. There's a lot of hysteria about it, but I think the U.S. Is, has a completely manageable long-term debt position. The opposition, the Republicans, have said they will not consider any increases of any kind in revenue, even if it means getting rid of deductions or a tax reforms, which everybody knows are needed. Corporation tax in the U.S. is a terrible mess, just to take one example. If the opposition don't want to negotiate on the only basis you could imagine the negotiation with the Democratic Party, which after all really did win the last election, then, uh, then I don't see how they can proceed. Well, suppose that Congress does not, hypothetically, does not raise the debt ceiling in, in, in the, at the first of the year. The president has to borrow. Has to, he has to borrow money to pay those bills that, 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 the, that, as you said, he owes. But if he does so without congressional approval, aren't we facing a, a constitutional crisis? Yes. If we actually got the situation that debt ceiling were not raised, the president had to make his decision on what to do, uh, the, uh, if you were, uh, all, all the options are very bad. I think the least bad is to continue borrowing. The second least bad is just to cut the domestic spending, but that creates a huge recession. The, the worst is actually to default on their debt, so they're all terrible. Uh, if this in, then ends up in a, in a quasi-judicial process, uh, an impeachment or something of this kind, when we're just sort of getting out of uh, out of the big post-crisis malaise, yes, I think it, will be, it could be potentially catastrophic. One never knows, right. but it would certainly be very bad for the reputation of the United States. The last time the United States played so fast and loose with the debt ceiling in 2011, Standard and Poor's downgraded our debt rating. Was there any, has there been any lasting consequence of that downgrading? No. I, think, I thought at the time that it, there probably wouldn't be because actually everybody continues to be confident that in the end the U.S. will service, it, service its debt and meet its debt obligations. There is, a, there is in the end, as we've already discussed, and you can see that in the markets now, confidence that However messy, complicated, and theatrical, the U.S. has a functioning political system in which the necessary compromises will always be reached because the center will hold. And that's what we've just seen. 
So as long as that's the case, these downgrades I don't think matter much. Uh, now, if we suddenly find that's not the case, then we're in a different world. But it seems to me the world understands this is a circus, that this is theater, this is spectacle, and they know in the end the United States will back away from the brink, and the markets don't rattle very hard. That is exactly right. What I think is the biggest co bigger cost, if the theater goes on, is simply that the, the government of the United States is distracted. Obviously, if it's going to now have a rolling every couple of months crisis and a rolling discussion of these issues, it can't do any of the other things that the world would like the U.S. to do, perhaps too much. So the president, for example, because of the shutdown, couldn't go to the meeting that he'd, he'd called in, in East Asia. Was that an embarrassment? It was clearly an embarrassment. Obviously, you know, the U.S. president suddenly can't go because uh, he's got to deal with what seems an absurd domestic problem to the rest of the world. So it does distract the U.S. in a profound way from its own role in, in the world. But it's, that's, I think, a very sad, because I think the world needs American leadership. But it's not a catastrophe. That's not a catastrophe. It's a nuisance. Uh, but it, the nuisance, it seems, is likely to continue. Jay, this is Emma from Houston. The Young Turks on your abortion episode were talking about how the trap laws make it so that women have to bear children and can't rely on government programs. And childcare is expensive, often more expensive than your regular job can pay for. So there's an incentive, you know, to stay home because you can't pay for it with the job you have. And that this is hypocritical of Republicans or conservatives. Because unless she can get a pretty well-paying job, she'd better stay home and make damn sure her husband or boyfriend is happy enough with her to support them all. I think it's morally hypocritical from my point of view and with my set of moral values, but honestly, I think that a conservative person looking at this doesn't see hypocrisy. They see traditional family values upheld, perhaps a bit through coercion, but maybe that's okay in their view. Um, I think we just, you know, sometimes when we're ranting about this, we maybe ought to take a look at what the completely different basic moral values of conservatives are from ours and it might make it seem to make a little more sense thanks for the great show jay hey jay this is joe from pennsylvania and i just finished listening to your show on voter suppression and the whole show i couldn't help but think why do we have any laws in this country that would decrease the number of people turning out to vote? Voting is one of our basic rights as Americans, and any law that is going to keep anybody from voting that has that right is completely un-American. We should have a national holiday, just like Thanksgiving, where all the stores, all, all the businesses are closed, and the only thing you have to do on that day is to vote and vote for whoever you want. And even not vote, because that's your right as well if you choose not to vote. The fact that the GOP needs to suppress Democratic-leaning voters is showing that they can't win on their ideas. So instead of coming up with better ideas or better ways to make the country better and thus get more people to vote for them, 
they have to try to stop people who are likely to vote against them. Thanks for the show, Jay. Hi, Jay. Maureen of Weymouth, Mass. In my late 30s, I was stricken by an illness that has left me unable to work and unable to drive. I exist on Social Security. I have Medicare and Medicaid. I also have Section 8. Because of budget cutbacks this year, I am paying almost over $400 per month, about a third of my monthly income, in an increase uh, for rent and health care. When I can complain to those in my family who are staunch conservatives, they reply, oh no, you're not the entitled who shouldn't get it. It's the people who are cheating the system. I think that something has to show them that the percentage of those cheating the system are so little. And those of us who really deserve it, in their mind, are by far the majority. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So I'm actually going to respond to all three voicemails, uh, but sort of quickly, uh, because I totally agree with basically everything everyone said. I obviously totally agree with the point of trying to understand the perspective and motivations of conservatives. This is a conversation that I've had on the show in the past. Whether you look at it from just a pure sort of like humanitarian idea of it's good to understand people and you understand yourself better all the way down to like the hard-nosed political realities of, you know, know thine enemy. Uh, it's definitely a good idea to know where people are coming from because frankly, if you if you understand that they are, you know, morally consistent in their own frame – the way, the way they look at the universe, they are morally consistent. If you understand that, you can uh, certainly have a better chance of sort of tapping into that and either, you know, convincing them that maybe another way is better or just, you know, reduce the amount of yelling that goes on around the Thanksgiving table. Uh, secondly, definitely totally agree uh, that, that, you know, as a democracy loving American, I believe that as many people voting as possible is the best thing. And, and I really believe and hope that I would still feel that way, even if I was in the GOP's position of having my electoral success go up as voter turnout goes down. And so, yeah, the fact that we still vote on Tuesdays because that's when the farmer could uh, travel in by horse and wagon from the fields into town to get there by Tuesday, like is ridiculous. It should obviously be on a weekend and be made a holiday. Uh, you know, I, I would even be in favor of, uh, you know, across the board mandatory voting, but that's a slightly different conversation. And then thirdly, I, I definitely totally agree that, uh, you know, people scamming our social safety net programs aren't nearly the problem conservatives make them out to be, you know, but my argument is that even if they are a problem, I would consider it basically a cost of doing business when you're in the business of helping people who need it. Plus, secondarily, it's a matter of priorities. If we shut down every instance of 
inappropriate corporate welfare and white-collar crime that result in billions of dollars being taken from individuals and our collective tax dollars, then I would happily entertain a discussion on cutting down fraud committed by poor people in which they steal you know, a few hundred dollars at a time, doing effectively no harm to anyone. Lastly, today there was an interesting postscript after my uh, commentary in the previous episode in which I tried to parse out the racial implications of voter ID laws. Basically, I said that you know, although some, you know, genuine bigots are obviously in existence and absolutely don't want people of color to vote, uh, that I, I didn't believe that that was sort of the fundamental source of where voter ID laws are coming from and, and the fact that they disproportionately affect people of color. But the fact that they disproportionately affect people of color and there's a general sense of, you know, that, that our country is sort of awash in uh, varying degrees of racism across, you know, essentially all people who live here that it makes a lot of people feel sort of okay that black people don't get to vote or are, you know, suppressed from voting because they just don't mind that much. And so the postscript to that was almost as soon as I posted that show, uh, I was alerted to the fact that the daily show, uh, just a week ago. So they, they got to it first to be fair, but I didn't see it until after I did that show produced, uh, you know, one of their interview clips in which they, uh, interview besides John Lewis, the civil rights leader and congressman, uh, they interviewed a GOP sort of, sort of a low level party guy. And, you know, interesting things ensue. Uh, GOP guy says terrible things, ends up resigning after the interview airs. And so I thought that I would share that with you since it's, it's making the rounds. Uh, definitely it's, it's getting a lot of play in a lot of places. So, uh, here's that clip. Earlier this year, the Supreme Court effectively struck down the Voting Rights Act, saying that it had been immensely successful at redressing racial discrimination. So basically saying enough's enough. I mean, why ruin a good thing by continuing it? Asif Manvi reports on how states have responded. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 protected voters from racial discrimination until June, when the Supreme Court struck down a key provision saying it was no longer necessary, which red states celebrated by introducing brand new, now constitutional, restrictive voting laws. These laws are just as racist as they can be. Congressman John Lewis apparently doesn't like progress. In another time, in another period, these devices was used to make it harder, make it difficult for the average person of color to participate in the process. But I don't think any part of the law is racist. North Carolina Precinct Chairman and GOP Executive Committee member Don Yelton thinks his state's new voting restrictions are just fine. What's going to happen as a result of this law, the process is going to have more integrity. Right here in Buncombe County, there's always one or two that voted twice a year. They don't one know One or two million people? No, one or two people. And that's one or two out of how many? That's just one or two out of 60,000. So statistically, there is enough voter fraud to sway zero elections. Mm, that's not the point. The point is, the voter fraud does, just barely, exist, while racism, according to the Supreme Court, is a thing of the past. The scars and stains of racism are still deeply embedded in every corner of American society. The bottom line is, the law is not racist. Of course the law is not racist, and you are not racist. Well, 
I've been called a bigot before. Let me tell you something. You don't look like me, but I, I think I've treated you the same as I would anybody else. Right. Matter of fact, one of my best friends is black. So one of your best friends. One of my best friends is black. Yes. And there's more. When I was a young man, you didn't call a black a black. You called him a Negro. Uh, I had a picture one time of Obama sitting on a stump as a witch doctor. And I posted that on Facebook. I was making fun of my white half of Obama, not the black half. And now you have a black person using the term nigger this, nigger that, and it's okay for them to do it. You know that we can hear you, right? Yeah. Okay, you know that. You, you, you know that we can hear you. Yeah. Okay, all right. Then I found out the real reason for the law. The law is going to kick the Democrats in the butt. Wow! An executive GOP committee member just admitted that this law isn't designed to hurt black people, it's designed to hurt Democrats. If it hurts a bunch of college kids that's too lazy to get up off their bohunkers and, and go get a photo ID, so be it. Right, right. If it hurts the whites, so be it. If it so hurts a it. bunch of lazy blacks that wants their, the government to give them everything, so be it. And it just so happens that a lot of those people vote Democrat. Gee. That's right. To supposedly prevent one or two cases of fraud, this law could suppress hundreds of thousands of actual voters. I can't believe we got that many stupid people in North Carolina and people that don't know how to follow directions and go down there and get a photo ID for free at the DMV. Do you want those people picking your president? No, we certainly don't want stupid people picking our president. Or Democrats, apparently. So to be clear, the, you know, the local Republican Party, where that guy came from, absolutely disavowed his comments. But, you know, it, it goes to my point. He is a genuine bigot. Uh, and, you know, hearing the things that he says are, are horrible to hear. But I think it, it was nice to, to have my uh, ideas sort of affirmed so quickly after saying them that, you know, you don't have to be as much of a bigot as he is to be in favor of the same policies that come, you know, with the, with the same outcome. It's just, uh, it's not a coincidence. It's just not. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Uh, go to that website or link to it from bestoftheleft.com uh, to get all the details on what that means. It's a really easy and powerful way to support the show. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder